How do I know what I think until I see what I say? The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Today's episode sponsor is Adaton. I got to know the Adaton co-founders, James and JJ, several years ago. They're former Army NCOs who spent years in tech. They know the job firsthand, and they truly listen to service members to learn about today's critical challenges. The Army has always been about the team. Whether in the field, at the motor pool, or wherever they work, troops must collaborate to accomplish their mission. Today, this mission is even more challenging as it extends over wider areas and requires greater information management. Leaders understand that the commander's intent is key to winning in complex environments, and this is where Adaton's flagship product, Muster, spelled M-U-S-T-R, comes into play. Muster is a tool that enables commanders to communicate their intent and connect it with action across a distributed formation. Whether you're preparing for an exercise, supporting sponsorship, or coordinating daily operations, Muster serves as a digital knife hand that simplifies complexity. If you're interested in leveraging Muster or learning about what other units are doing with it, reach out to Adaton. For a limited time, listeners of the From the Green Notebook podcast can try out Muster for free. Visit adaton.io forward slash green notebook to get started. That's A-D-Y-T-O-N dot I-O slash green notebook. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Matt Higgins. Matt is the author of Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard, and Unleash Your Full Potential. Growing up in extreme poverty and taking care of his sick mother, Matt's determination was put to the test at a young age. It was this determination that led him to make bold choices, like leaving high school and getting his GED. These decisions were epitomized by his personal Burn the Boats philosophy. This philosophy has guided Matt's incredible journey, where he dealt with the aftermath of the September 11th attacks as Mayor Giuliani's press secretary, excelled as an executive for the Jets, and faced the pressure of performing as a guest shark on Shark Tank. In addition to Matt's amazing story, we talk about overcoming imposter syndrome, the power of vulnerability, and the importance of self-awareness. I love these conversations because I get to learn so much, and it's made even better because I get to share these experiences with you. So grab your green notebooks and please welcome to the show, Matt Higgins. Hello. Good to see you. Good to see you, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm doing amazing. I'm excited for this too. Anytime I can be around military, anybody or anything, I'm excited. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you worked literally in the shadows of the towers that I've lived under those now for the last 20 years based off of, you know, the experiences I've had in my career and a lot of our listeners have had, like you were literally at ground zero, but I want to, I want to back up before we get to that part of your story. I think it's amazing. A lot of people think their circumstances determine the outcome of their lives and you're the 
counter story to that story. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> right. Heavy responsibility to uh because now if I become a total reject, you know, now I have to <laughs> Yeah, so don't do that. I'll try to live up, I'll live up to that compliment. But yeah, I mean to rewind for those who don't know me, uh, I grew up in uh, Queens, New York and uh, abject poverty, truly would um sell flowers on street corners. I just remember today how much I would get into collecting cans. Do they, I don't know if we still do that anymore, but I used to love collecting cans. It always felt like such great arbitrage right there on the street. So I would sell flowers on street corners on holidays, but I would also collect cans out of garbage cans and whatever, like whatever it would take. And so it seemed like the easiest way to make a lot of money, but I'm just painting a picture. Uh, grew up extreme poverty, taking care of a, helping take care of a mom who was uh, progressively more disabled as life went on. Um, and we can get into the radical decision at birth this book, if you'd like. Yeah, we'll go where you want to go. It's your story. And I know you tell it all the time, too. So, well, yeah, that's why I always try to think, what haven't I told? And then I just remembered my cans, collecting cats randomly. But uh, yeah. I think it's what just uh, kind of piece it together. Like you dropped that. Well, you got your GED in high school. Yeah. The, the, and I always like to tell the origin story because I don't want to misrepresent that I was like some bad kid. You know, that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is that I was growing up in these desperate circumstances and feeling very, well, there's almost like the stages of grief as a little kid, right? Like, my, you know, my parents were divorced and I would always fantasize about a man coming in to save the day and that never happened. And then you go through, well, maybe society will help. And, you know, you feel very unseen because you're creating the conditions for to be unseen. Back then, it's funny, now the kids, like, they're wealth shamed. Back then, you know, you get the shit kicked out of you if you were poor. So I would try to hide that up the best I could. Obviously, I sold flowers to put money on the table, but also to buy Jordache jeans, you know, so that no one would know I was poor. Right? Like, that was my context. But anyway, and and, then just a lot of times, just getting progressively more desperate. We would take a bus to a food pantry so that nobody in the neighborhood would recognize us, take a bus an hour away. I always have these fond memories of Baptist churches because they were so kind to me and Catholic church. But this feeling of not the cavalry is never going to come. Like that's the conclusion anyone who's gone through desperation draws. Either you you drew that conclusion or draw that conclusion, or you draw the perpetual state of victimization. Right? Like the you know the deck is stacked against me. Like I chose to feel like I have to take circumstances into my own hands and do something about it. And out of that desperation, at a very young age, came the greatest life hack that the universe ever presented to me, which was stimulated by my mom. My mom was a high school dropout, not by choice, a terrible, terrible, abusive background. But she had a GED and I watched her do that when she was a 38 year old mom. And then she went to Queens College with that GED. And I remember thinking, wait a second, you can go to college with a GED? I was like, well, I'm gonna go to high school. Seems like a big old waste of time. And I kind of merged that insight or that data point with the fact that back then, if you were a college student, you could make like eight bucks an hour and the little penny saver we would get delivered free the door these jobs college student only and i was working at mcdonald's making 375 an hour scraping gum or a deli making five bucks an hour i was like if i could just run this play just get a gd i can go to college and to me it was the greatest epiphany like i don't know how you feel i love when i even the smallest little arbitrage i discover in the universe like whether it's selling options, which I do all the time for fun. Like I'm so excited when I discover another way. And so for me as a little kid, it was the first time in the longest time I felt hope. Like, wait, there's an angle I could run here that would work for me because I would work an overnight at a deli carrying a butterfly knife in case I got jumped. Like 
it didn't work. The system wasn't set up for a kid like me, right? And any kid who's poor knows can relate to this. Like when you're growing up poor, usually it's not just the absence of food that you struggle with or any of the refinement that you get. I could never figure out which spoon does what. You know, like I was lacking everything. But more importantly, I was parentified as a young age and it was my job to raise my mom. So like when you're a kid growing up in poverty, you always have multiple jobs. They're always different. Maybe dad's in prison, like, but there's usually some dysfunctional parentification where you're being forced to grow up too early, right? So the idea that I'm going to show up at school, you know, at 8 a.m. after working at the deli overnight is ludicrous. And it's so funny if we approach education the way we now approach the workforce, where it's like, sure, you can work from home remotely because you need a mental health day. Like we don't treat kids that way because we we don't have visibility and we're not entrepreneurial about it. Anyway, long way of saying, I was so excited. And I go to my guidance counselor at the time. You know, he's like, why do you keep getting picked up by the police at McDonald's? And I was like, I don't know, ask them. But I got a plan. My plan is I'm going to drop out of high school. And everyone said, you're going to be a loser. You're crazy. Partly, they didn't understand the desperate circumstances I was into. But also because the system represents the system. And the system can't have a bunch of kids dropping out of high school, taking a GD and go to college. But I went forward with it. And this is where Burn the Boats come in. We can pause here. but. Where Burn the Boats comes from is not the decision to drop out of high school. It was the decision to sabotage the alternative path. Because I was under so much pressure and lobbying from everybody that that's a crazy idea that I realized this is totally conscious. That if I fail every single class, you'll relegate me to the kids you no longer care about. I call it the land of misfit toys. There was a homeroom where kids would just sit there with their beepers and like, coming when they want, dealing drugs. And I was like, I need to be in that room. That's the room where you don't care anymore. And I failed every single class in high school, except for one class typing. And uh, I went forward with it. That was my burn the boats move. And that is the genesis of all my success in life was that one decision. Through the book, you recount the multiple jobs that, that you've jumped into from being the press secretary for Mayor Giuliani at ground zero. Like I think you took the job in April. Yeah. 2001. And then a couple of months later, September 11th happens. And you know, you're part of that rebuilding effort. Eventually the jets take you on because they're trying to build a new stadium. You become an exec there and you just keep literally jumping up. The the one thing I, I'm curious about is you talk about the spoons. The thing that I thought of, like, I didn't grow up knowing how to tie a tie. Yeah. And even to this day, I'm still watching YouTube videos to figure that out because my dad didn't wear it. My dad was an electrician. He didn't wear a tie to work. And so the spoon things, man, kind of hit me. But you get it, though, right? You think sit with you. Yeah. By the way, I can't, I write upside down because I like, I remember like sort of learning how to write in the midst of that dysfunction. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of lack of refinement that stays with you. Right. That makes you feel a little bit like an imposter syndrome too. That's the question I was going to ask you. Like, how did you deal with that? Did you have it? And then how did you deal with that as you're in these different situations with people who have a completely different pedigree than you? Yeah, I think the answer is had and have. You know, it's not like you arrive and you feel like, okay, now I feel like I'm not an imposter anymore. And so I guess the reality is there was a more important countervailing force that enabled me to overcome it It, with each move. And and, uh, press secretary in particular, that was a really hard decision. I was actually 
one of the hardest decisions I ever made. And we're, we're bypassing a piece of it. But to go from 16 years old, high school dropout, scraping up at McDonald's, I was 375 an hour. At 26 years old, I got offered the job for press secretary of the mayor of New York, $100,000 a year. Like, and I hated my life, truthfully. I don't want to claim that I was that kid who loved taking care of my mother. I would give her sponge baths. I never had a girl over my house once. Never had a friend. I lived a, a secret life. I'd close that door and turn into Superman, right? So I hated my life. And it's important to share because a lot of people out there are being are parentified and they're caregivers. And so if I don't share that, it's like, oh, he's a better person than me because I secretly hate my life too. So like, you know, a lot of people accept the responsibility because we're good people or we feel like we have to, but it doesn't mean you have to love it. And so point is, when Giuliani offers me that job as press secretary, we had no money left. My mother was uh, living off of oxygen, face was purple. And I remember thinking like, this is the worst possible time. I'm going to be press secretary of the mayor of New York. I was also in law school, by the way. I skipped that part. I'm going to law school at night. Fordham Law. It's not like it's a cakewalk. I'm on law review, which is, you know, a great accolade, right? But not easy. And then I'm press secretary. And I remember thinking, one, I have no choice and I have to take care of her. And two, the money is amazing. And three, we don't get to choose the moments of our opportunity. And I went to work that day and I left the house. And uh, she called me at 10 o'clock and she had called an ambulance. And by the time I got there, she died. And so I share that too, to be, to honestly reinforce that our intuition is trying to tell us something. My instincts told me that she would die if I didn't outrun it. And even though no one could see the, 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 the threat, I was so close to it. And I'm like, this is going to compound. I don't know how she's going to die, but she's going to die early. She only died. She's only 55. She's five years older than me right now. And so my point is, in writing this book, I zero in on that moment, I really wanted to hold up a mirror to what not only what we're capable of, but this internal navigation system that conventional wisdom makes us ignore. How did I, that little 16-year-old boy know that dropping out of high school is correct? How, and in the end, when you look back, it was. And I bring that up in the context of imposter syndrome because talk about imposter syndrome. Not only do I feel like I'm not capable, probably feel like I don't deserve it, don't know which way the spoons go, but also I live in a dirt roach motel and I'm changing and pressing that shirt, walking out that door. So that's a long way of saying to this day, I still experience it, but I've changed my relationship with imposter syndrome. Now I no longer see it as something that needs to be overcome. It's something I seek out. I want to feel like a fraud. I want to feel like I'm not capable of it because it's a feedback loop. Right. Like, and I always consider it an alternative, a life of mediocrity. Like if I'm not feeling imposter syndrome, it's because I got it covered. And so when I feel that angst of like, ugh, I'm going to be discovered. I'm like, oh, good. I'm going to be discovered. I'm not going to be discovered. <laughs> I'm going to crush this. I love in the book, like I, I wrote it down as soon as I came across it. You said only helicopters hover. Humans are either ascending or descending. And the status quo is resilient. And so you got to fight. And I think, you know, you think you're maintaining status quo. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're descending. I, and I, I feel so strongly about that. And I'm so glad we're talking about this because I actually think out of all the different principles in the book, this is the top five that people reject in, intuitively or instinctively right? because it's uncomfortable and disquieting, right? Like, and, you know, people don't want to believe you're losing ground when you're standing ground. And so then I would say, simple way to realize it is to understand that this is the single 
overarching organizing principle of the universe. The universe is expanding at however many light years per second, right? It's still expanding. I don't know when it's going to stop expanding. And then I guess it'll contract. We'll all be dead. But in the interim, it's expanding. So you're on this planet. Presumably, you were meant to expand too. And everything we relate to is evolution is everything. There's always a condition precedent that feeds into the next thing, right? Every show is an evolution of the last one and everything we do. So obviously, you're meant to progress or regress if you don't. And so that has driven every single decision, but it but it's uncomfortable and taxing. Yeah. And speaking of the uncomfortable, I just, I love this story. So I want to like work this into it. Okay. Yeah. Mom spaghetti, right? Like <laughs> Eminem, lose yourself. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Very triggering. And a good, <laughs> yeah, I, knew. I was like, when you say it, I'm like, oh, you know, and then I remember I put it in the book too. I'm like, why did I put that in a book? I, that happens to me a lot. I'm like, did I put that in a book? Yeah. That's embarrassing. No, like, but anyway, mom's spaghetti. Yes. People sometimes think that people that are doing great things, like have their shit together. Like they got it all figured out. But what you're talking about, like anytime you're growing, anytime you're ascending, it is very uncomfortable. Any growth period I've ever been in is, has been uncomfortable. And I love that story because on the surface, it looks like you got it made, but so just tell, I know I'm like, I love that you're framing it that way. And let's put a pin in your framing because I want to go back to you're saying on the surface part. So for those who don't, you know, no, I've been on Shark Tank, a shark on Shark Tank. So you now that you heard the story of flowers and the Roach Motel, you can imagine <laughs> that by age 41 to go from McDonald's to being on Shark Tank with Mark Cuban, it's not like a heady moment because I wouldn't say it was about ego. It was like a wow, like that's incredible, right? This singular moment of me being on the show is going to alter the trajectory of my life. And so great, amazing. It's also validation of my investing career. All good, right? Except it freaked me out because I felt like this was the moment when the fraud would be revealed. Really, I don't know why. Again, now some people I tell this story, it's just Shark Tank, it's amazing. Well, who would feel upset about being on Shark Tank? I'm like, all right, well then I suck, I guess. But when you're on Shark Tank, you let me know how you feel, but I'll tell you how I feel. <laughs> I was like, and then... For two, I'm a terrible insomniac. And for two nights, I didn't sleep. And I remember my, you know, the alarm goes off at five o'clock in the morning. My wife, Sarah, is, you know, always in a foxhole with me. She's like, all right, baby, it's a big day. You ready? She had slept. And I'm like, no, I took two <laughs> ambience. I powered through those. I took magnesium. I took the melatonin and I stayed up all night. I like literally while she was asleep, I was making mental notes. I'm going to say that I ordered the salmon in the hotel because then I checked the menu to make sure they had salmon so I wouldn't be called out on my lie. This is how crazy I was. And I'm going to tell them I'm sick. I can't perform. And I'm going to have this kid, Rowan Oza, guy Rowan Oza, who lives nearby. I already checked that out. I found out how far he lives from the show. He'll step in. I already made sure he was in town. This is how crazy I am. And I tell my wife this and she's like, well, why don't you take a shower and see how you feel? And I'm in the shower and I'm sitting on the floor and I'm thinking like, oh, man, I didn't come this far to be felled by imposter syndrome and anxiety. Like, this isn't how I go out. This can't be how I go out. And I got my head together and I was like, we all need something. I'm laughing at this. It's so ridiculous. And I'm in the shower and I'm like, what's going to get me through this next couple hours? It was actually 10 hours of shooting. And I thought the great poet from Detroit, Eminem, I'm going to listen to Lose Yourself on a Loop for the next three hours until this show starts. And I, I tell my wife again, and sweet, empathetic, that sounds like a plan, babe. And then there's a video of me in the car. Mom's spaghetti, never, never saw ready. And then, so I get to the show. <laughs> again, they're trying to do my makeup around that. I'm like, no, you got to leave those on. I got I to gotta stick with them. And I'm, 
And then I, I got, you know, you got to talk to somebody. So I go to, I go to um, Damon, John, who grew up in Queens, right? We have similar backgrounds. He's black, I'm white, but we worked, he worked at Red Lobster. I was at McDonald's, like, and I felt like I could tell him the truth, right? And I was like, dude, I, I don't know. I don't know why I'm freaked out, but I am. I feel like a total fraud imposter. And he's like, after MFing everybody else, he was like, they don't understand what we've been through. He tells me the most incredible thing, like Socrates had spoken through the ages. I was like, Matt, you belong here because you are here. And I was like, oh, it's so interesting. No final arbiter of belonging. That's actually technically true. There's no one here who's going to tell me that I belong here. It's up to me. So I was like, all right, I got it. And then I still freeze. <laughs> and I had a moment. Mark Cuban actually leaned over. And now this might all be in my mind. But he leaned over at a moment when I was paused. And he said something that was meant to nurture me along. And it felt so condescending that it woke me out of this fever dream I was in. And I'm sure he didn't, but in my mind he did. I was like, oh, that's pity. I, I know that look. You're looking at me with pity. <laughs> I was like, for a nanosecond, closed my eyes. And I was like, I have done hundreds of millions of dollars of deals. I came from nothing. And I'm sitting here on this thing. I know this inside and out. I'm going to compete. And I'm going to leave everything on the field. And I know I'm standing on a cliff right now. It's pitch black, but I know there's water down below. And I'm just going to jump. And it was a sea change. I went, as you might say, weapons-free. And I put it all out there. I competed against Cuban and O'Leary, and I won that first deal. And this is the important part of the story for going back to the pin and I put in when you, you asked me that question, the framing. When I came back, Laurie Grenier turns to me and she puts her hand on my arm. She's like, Matt, she's very nurturing, by the way. Matt, on a scale of one to 100, you got a 95 because nobody gets 100. But in the 10 years of Shark Tank, whatever it was, no one's ever walked on the set and act like they had been there from the first day. So amazing. Think about everything I told you, Eminem, don't sleep, total nest, like pathetic. And yet I got ahead and she gives me that praise. And I felt like it was true. I had owned the room, right? Now, fast forward, I have a choice to make. I could let the tape do the talking for me. You just said, you look great. You know, people would say I was a natural, right? And that's what ABC, the network said, get used to this chair. You belong here, right? But that's useless for somebody to watch me on that show because they would conclude I'm not as good as you. Unlike you, I came from nothing and I'm insecure when I get on that set. If I was on Shark Tank, I'd be freaked out. But look at you, you're a natural. And I think the problem with society now and Instagram, we airbrush the messy parts once we become successful because it's embarrassing. And I tried to make the opposite choice with my book, Burn the Boats. I want to lower myself. I don't care that I was great on Shark Tank. I want you to know that I was freaked out in preparation because maybe you'll meet me at that point of intersection. At the moment you might choose to quit because you have those feelings, you'll say, that guy, Matt, is kind of cringy. <laughs> he pulled it off. And so anyway, long way of saying, I really appreciate that you sort of framed it that way because that's the mission I'm on is like, let me pull back the curtain a little bit. Over the last four years, I've developed a morning ritual of reading, writing, and reflection. But before I do any of that, I brew a hot cup of my favorite coffee, Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And when I go to the field for training, Alpha comes with me because they also make K-Cups and they make instant coffee too. You've got to try their Seven Summits instant coffee. Not only do they have great coffee, they're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 22,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. 
They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. So go check them out and make Alpha Coffee part of your morning ritual and taste the Alpha difference. That's one of the things that stood out about your book. It wasn't like, once I got past this little road bump at 16 and 26, I figured it all out. You keep going back. Like if I was to take, you know, chart out your book and like moments of growth that you share, like you share the stumbling block before you. I take a bat to everything. (laughs) I really, anytime somebody said that, it's like, God, your book, like just when I felt like it was all okay, you take a bat to it. But that's, again, as we're growing, and especially in the military, you're constantly going from position to position of greater responsibility. And, you know, for me, like there's been several times where I've been like, okay, I got total imposter syndrome, Matt. You know, what would a guy that I think is really good at this job, what would he do? How would he act right now? I love that. By the way, I'd say to my wife all the time, hey, babe, could you tell me what it would look like if a guy who was on chart time <laughs> walked in the room so I could be that guy? Yeah. <laughs> to this day, I'm still like, um, can you tell me what it'd be like if you met the guy? Isn't that funny? Yeah. yeah. In just another another vignette, one of the greatest team captains of all time of the New Zealand All Blacks, mm. the famous rugby team. When he was named team captain, he was like, I don't deserve this. And and like one of the alumni of the team was like, you know, hey, mate, you're a captain now. Better start acting like one. And that's like he just started acting like one. And then eventually you know, became one of the greats in the all black history. And so the great scene in the movie, catch me if you can. And the, and the father is talking to Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> and he's talking about the Yankees with the pinstripe son, you got to put on the pinstripes. It's, like, it's in the context of fraud, but it's sort of like, it's a very true point because you do have to own it. You know, that is the, it's funny. The part that you do need to be calculated about when you have imposter syndrome, like it or not, you got to own it too, right? Like you got to assume the position at the end of the day and you got to, and if it requires imagining what one might look like if they authentically owned it, be that person. It works. But one way or another, you got to be that person. Yeah. I do it every day. Um, (laughs) Same same as me, you know, well, one of the good part about having a little bit of money and autonomy back to how you're going to spend your political capital in the world. I choose to spend my political capital by being honest about it, right? I now yeah. have it. I have more autonomy, I got money. What am I going to do with it? Well, I'm not going to front. I'm going to actually be more honest because I have yeah. nothing. You can't hurt me now, right? Love it. I love it. Well, speaking of honesty, one of the other things in the book that you talk about a lot is self-awareness. And from the Green Notebook, kind of the pillars that I've developed over the years for the site are reading, writing, and reflection. So for me, every morning I wake up 4.30, 4.45, not because I'm Jocko willing, but because like I need that time before I actually have to be at work. I have to leave the house at 5.30. I need that time to reflect. So I just sit there for like 10, 15 minutes in a journal, you know, and that's like one of the tools that I use for self-awareness. Yeah. Could you kind of just share like your self-awareness journey as well, because uh, again, I, I love that aspect of the book because you yeah. put so much stock into it. I do. And I really believe that self-awareness is the greatest point of arbitrage that's entirely within our control, personally and professionally. And it's the one thing we like to load, right? We go to Barnes and Noble and a book or watch a TED talk. And it's like, well, that the answers are within, not without. There's a great line in Latin from the essay, Self-Reliance, one of the best pieces of writing ever written. And everybody listening to should go read that now if you haven't. But he says in Latin, do not seek outside thyself. And so for me, I've noticed personally 
the unlock began when I was brought to my knees. I talk about this in a book. Going through cancer didn't knock me down. Going through divorce and uh, imagining the loss of your family, like really, you know, leveled my sense of self-worth, everything. But through that journey, I was no longer afraid to look within. I was like, all right, well, I'm on my knees now, you know, praying to my maker. I was like, now, now I can finally face the things I haven't faced. And that is when I truly started evolving as a leader. And so professionally as an investor and as somebody overseeing small and large institutions, I find self-awareness is so important to cultivate because self-awareness scales. So what do I mean by that? If you have a leader who over-indexes um, with self-awareness, that means they are confident enough to face themselves and what's going wrong. They have humility. They're willing to acknowledge that they, they could be flawed. They have the confidence to change direction before it's too late. And they conduct their own interventions. When somebody under-indexes for self-awareness, they need um, an outside force to intervene, to let them know that they suck as a leader or the company is screwing. Same is true in the military, right? But when you have a leader who embraces self-awareness, they conduct their own interventions. And so self-awareness as an investor scales. So when I'm looking at deals, I'm constantly trying to find someone who over-indexes because then I know that they will figure out how to make the little bit of course corrections along the way that make all the difference. And so then the next question is, well, if somebody under-indexes, how for self-awareness, can they be taught? And I'm sure you deal with this as a leader. I know you oversee 500 soldiers. Like, can it be taught? And it's a balance, but I think actually how you cultivate self-awareness in an institution is that you share failure and idiosyncrasies and vulnerabilities because you create space. And when somebody sees that it's safe, that somebody's sharing something that they wouldn't, they begin to model that, right? And so now when I do that, even in conversations in the beginning when I'm forming a relationship, when somebody doesn't meet me there with a degree of empathy or maybe sharing their own, I'm like, oh, you have either low EQ or you're a sociopath. So it's actually very healthy. The normal human response when met with a degree of sharing vulnerability is to, ma is to match it, mirror it. I know I'm going on. I'm so passionate about this topic. And I'm, I'm not perfect. And, you know, just because I'm self-aware doesn't mean I'm able to, to do anything about some of the things I discover. But I think I think it's such an incredible unlock. I do too. And and I love how passionate you are about it. Sometimes maybe I overshare, you know, but I think it's so important because as soon as people see that like, okay, that person's making good decisions and they're not perfect and I'm not perfect either. Maybe I can start making better decisions with my life too. I think that's what it's all about. I'm looking at you as a commander. Like I would listen to you. You know what I mean? Like, because you emit empathy and you're not afraid to tackle whatever it is you're dealing with, right? So that means, oh, I can I can tackle what I'm dealing with. I used to be, Matt, several years ago. Like I was constantly trying to put on a front, you know, please other people and I guess play roles, but like not even acknowledge my own weaknesses in those. And then, uh, yeah, there's, you know, life circumstances kind of brought me to my knees as well. But it was, you know, daily journaling is really what changed it for me. It was counseling. You know, there, there was a, dark part of our marriage where things almost didn't look like they were going to survive and started working on ourselves. And then I realized like, man, once you start being vulnerable with yourself, you can actually start growing. Yeah. I have these notes I'd put on, on my phone so that I could refer back to. Again, this is even at my level, right? Like supposedly successful. My first thing is face everything that needs facing. And then I, and I have a list of everything and it's constantly changing, but it's the things that I don't want to face. 
you know, it's like, ah, but then I look at them like, and they lose their power over me, but I have to write them down. And then the second thing is say everything that needs saying. Yeah. These are all the things that I don't want to talk about. It's usually in, in involving friction with other humans. And I'm like, oh God, do I really have to? And then it's do everything that needs doing. And it's always the things, the, the action steps, right? And I kind of, and then I have another bucket, which is optimize everything that needs optimizing. So in the optimizing category, it's mind, peace. What are the things I need to do to have mental inner peace? Body, what are the things I need to do to have longevity? And then uh, three, safety, because I need to feel safe. What are the things that Matt needs in order to feel safe? And lastly, joy, do more of what I love. And then reminding me, this is my, my little compass that I refer to constantly. I think that's awesome because you are somebody who's achieved a lot of things. And I think that sometimes we get stuck on the instant, like you said, the Instagram reels, the polished, we get stuck on the trappings of success without thinking through the work. Well, you know what I find anybody listening to this, evaluate content now after you hear what I'm about to say. All the gurus follow, a lot of them at least, shouldn't say all, there's some that I really like, follow a pattern. And the pattern is, I now have the answers and I'm going to share that with you. And I never want to be that guy. I want to be somebody who's commiserating with you. <laughs> Ernie being like, I, I got to figure it out, you know, like, and and I do find it such a disservice because subconsciously what, what it triggers inside somebody is like, thank you for the answers, but I'm not as good as you. Yeah. When you commiserate with somebody about the regression, I think the regression is way more important than the progression because regression is where we commiserate. Like, oh, you go backward too? Wait, you're your level and you're on, you know, whatever you may think of me, you have to go into your phone and read those things. It's so simplistic. And so anyway, I'm on a mission to focus on the regression more than the progression. A lot of people know what they should be doing, right? Like the answers are not, even my book, it's not, you know, some of it's masters of the obvious, right? It's the act of illustration and commiserating about how hard it is to execute on those points that I think makes people connect. Yeah, I agree. And I'm like really excited because this isn't the interview I thought we were going to have. Um, <laughs> oh, that's better than <laughs> It is, it is. What, what, what interview in a parallel universe, what would we be talking about then? Uh, it'd be a boring podcast. Um, okay, good, 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 good. I points. hate that. No, I hate that. I always have to say something uncomfortably raw. <laughs> now, this is the B side of the book. These are the deeper tracks. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that you don't get. But like the fact that you do that every day, the fact that I have to, I know what happens if I don't watch myself. You know, like I know what happens if I don't journal every day. It's almost like I cling on to that moment every single morning. But that's actually great that you do that because I actually think the more typical thing is probably more like me. I know that meditation changes my life. Honestly, it heals me from all the trauma I had. I mean, I'm still, you know, I go to bed, I've, I'm in a war zone at night. You know what I mean? I'm up seven times. I barely sleep. Like if I meditate, I start to win that war, which I've been fighting. I'm on 49 years old, right? I still cannot stick to it entirely. I deny myself the one thing that changes everything. The fact that you get up every day at four and you journal because you know that it's what it takes for you to be at your best, you are ahead of 90% of the population. So that's amazing. I'm just sharing honestly that like, I know, I too know what I need and I don't stick to it entirely. Yeah. And just for me personally, like I, I just don't want to go back to that place in my life ever again. I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. 
Well, you know what it is, but like I, I have been talking about this more. I do think it belies when you identify what it is that makes you great or well, and you don't give it to yourself. That actually is symptomatic of a of a problem with self esteem. I think slight problem would work mm-hmm. where you're not putting yourself first above all other people. Yeah, I think for me it's probably a, a symptom of being a caretaker. Right, that I feel like when my mind debates myself whether to give myself the 20 minute meditation for you would be the journaling at four. There would be some other need in the hierarchy that would I'd have to put above me. I can't do that because I got to work on this and I got to make sure the kids are okay or that five twenty nine plan is overflowing. You know, so maybe for me, it's not so much a self worth issue as it's um, a prioritizing, right? Which you know, there were years and years and years where I was denied that opportunity. I was a caretaker, right? And then that's emotion. So wow, now we're really oversharing. Uh, just in case <laughs> the audience is like, I hate you both. I can't journal at four a.m. <laughs> And I can't meditate. Well, you know, I always say I asterisk the shit out of my book because I don't really think I actually, although obviously it's clear since you read it <laughs> that I took a bat to most of the successes. But yeah, anyway, I share that, that I think I'm more typical and that it's hard to stick with it. So for me, like one of the best and worst things about my schedule is I want to read. I want to read and I want to write. I want to reflect, but I only have so many windows to do that throughout the day. So it's before I go to work and then maybe a little bit before I go to bed and then and maybe lunchtime. And it's it's been really cool doing this podcast. When James Patterson was working at an advertising agency, he would shut the door during lunch every day and just write. But because he only had that like hour window, like it forced him to take advantage of it because he didn't have another time of the day to do it. And so I think that's kind of like my thing. And so maybe once I lose the structure of the military, that could change. I don't know. Wonder how you'll feel, right? Maybe you're like Secretariat, though, and we've been holding you back. <laughs> Maybe you're just gonna go set all sorts of crazy records because now you won't you won't be encumbered anymore. That's the dream. That's the dream. Well, I know our time is running short, and I found out like right before the interview that you're actually doing some work with the military, correct? Yeah, I am unapologetically on Team USA, which is ridiculous that we have to say that these days, but that's just I'm just very passionate about the military and love any opportunities to be around it. And maybe it was about 9-11, but also it's about justice and politics. I've always been involved uh, since I was young and love this country and just love the military. And honestly, whenever I interact with somebody, even you now telling me in the beginning you're in Germany right now, I was like, well, I'm not in Germany sacrificing. You are. And three words always come to mind when I interact with somebody in the military. And it's a I owe you, right? Like I always feel like, oh, I owe you. And so I really do feel I owe you. You spent 20 years there. I didn't. So now I owe you because I was able to build wealth to whatever I did during those 20 years. And so for me, an exchange has been has happened. I really feel that way. And that's a good feeling. I like feeling that way. And so I have done a few things involved in the military that I love. One is uh, with this group called 51 Vets that helps transition uh, usually elite operators uh, into the private sector who talk about imposter syndrome. Here's somebody working at the SEALs or you know, wherever the Rangers and in there, but they're like, damn, I don't know how to use Excel. You know, so it's like I help demystify and, and nurture. But specifically on the operating business, my number one most important business that I uh, involved in is a company called um, PDW, Performance Drone Works. And it's uh, been something I've been working on for years and years and years. And so we enable autonomy at the warfighter level. We uh, have drones that are about 20 pounds. So these drones are able to basically do, you know, find, fix, and kinetics. It's a platform where uh, incredible camera, incredible hovering capability. So anyone out there, you know, on the front line of whatever has got this incredible device that can do a lot of different things. 
It took years and years and years to create it. It was actually spun out from the Drone Racing League, the sport. And we spun out this division dedicated solely to the military, set it up in Alabama. I got to know John Brennan, former CIA director, told him my vision for years, convinced him to join the board eventually. General Thomas, head of SOCOM, same thing, got to know him. He's now on my board. So it's just anyone who's involved in, in the military on the uh, commercial side, contracting side, knows the valley of death. And now I understand it because I have walked through it, which is like, you have to spend all this money, you know, contracts take years to come. Requirements are hard to navigate. It's so hard to innovate. But I always say one of my core bedrock principles is that complexity becomes its own moat. Once you go through the complexity, now you're on the other side of it. And um, I just love, so anyone listening to this, check out pdw.ai. But now that so much about the future of conflict has to do with drones, I really feel like we made this early investment and now we have the best small UAS on earth and we're on the home team. So that gets me really excited. Well, two things. First of all, the fact that you pay your taxes, you know, you've, you've been paying back, you know, you've supported my lifestyle for the last 20 years. So thank you for that. And then uh, second thing, the drone, your investment in drones, like that is the future of warfare. You know, the nature of war, it hasn't changed since we started throwing sticks at each other because we wanted the other person's cave. But the character of warfare has changed and it's changing faster and faster. But if you look at what DGI, what China has done with DGI, right? I mean, like the drones have been a subsidized industry in other countries and obviously not ours, right? So, you know, it puts us at a disadvantage and I leaned heavy into it. We're going to have autonomous drones. We are, you know, we and and our drones were designed with the warfighter in mind. And I do think a lot of times when you're too precious about it, these companies like want their cake and eat it too. You want to serve the military, but you'd like to, you know, maybe maybe not talk about it. <laughs> like, no, I'm all in. <laughs> I was there on 9-11. I stood under the building. I see what Al-Qaeda was capable of doing and what they will do again, right? So I'm all in on this project. Nothing matters more to me than this company. It's awesome, Matt. And again, I, I appreciate your time. Burn the boats. Honestly, like I didn't know what I was going to get when I read it. Sometimes I don't read the synopsis of the book. I just start reading it. And uh, one was amazed at, at your humility, like what, what you shared throughout your career. But the other thing is the, the stories of all the other people that you've kind of helped along the way. And then just that, you know, you included in the book, you know, whether it was a, a coach who, you know, wasn't too sure about you know, like hiring people who are smarter than them as assistant coaches yeah. or uh, God, the story of, uh, of Taylor, the Canadian Olympian who yeah. uh, she's a paraplegic, right? Uh, yeah. Who now has cup of tea. And my wife and I were on the website last night. Uh, oh, I love that. Tea. Yeah. Anyways, you know, the stories. And I think as you get to know me and you could hear it on my voice, hopefully my credentials and my biography is irrelevant to me. It's useless. I think it's what I've learned along the way is useful. And I really wanted to only share enough about me to credentialize the grief or the pain, but I wanted to illustrate these principles about burn the boats and commitment and what does undying commitment look like and to make it not simplified. Burn the boats is a very simplistic, bombastic slogan. I wanted to actually appropriate it on behalf of the anxiety-ridden, you know, and the angst-laden, like pretty much all of us, and say, no. The principle is true. The simplicity of it is not. It's hard to do. Let me show you how, but the, let me show you the prize when you fully commit and the science behind it and the psychology. What does it look like? And I, that's my point of a book. And I think some people who don't like it, I love it when I look, I love the bad reviews because it's people who expect it like a simplistic 
screw everybody, you know? And it's like, oh, it's not that book. Yeah. And it highlights women. It starts with the women, uh, women uh, founders at first. It ends with them too, on purpose. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, it's trying to expand the pool of people who can use this philosophy of commitment beyond the bombastic, simplistic, you know, phrase. Because I, I do think our, most of the world's relationship with risk is off. Yeah. And we need help and guidance about how to take on more risk. I've got one endorsement I would like to add for the book. You know, a lot of times we compare, you know, being in the military jokingly, right? To like spending 20 years in Shawshank. And then it's time to leave Shawshank. And a lot of guys are like really scared. You know, they don't, they don't know what they're going to do. They're just trying to figure things out. And so I think uh, for those who are in that boat, Burn the Boats is actually like a really good book to read to kind of, you know, give you a pep talk from not just Matt, but the, the, the 10, 20, 30 p- different people he covers in that book as well, who've also burned the boat and, and gone all in on something else like so anyways, I thought it's a great oh, And also, by the way, on the military point, I do give this little talk to folks. It's a little bit like an NFL athlete. You mentioned that part of the book in this context, right? Like That's right. You talk to NFL athletes. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, part of the problems with NFL athletes is two issues. One, they don't leverage their asset while they have it, right? And similar to somebody in the military, when you're in the military and you're serving when others are not, the emotion that I talked about, those three words I owe you, I'm not unusual in that. So I don't think people who are active service like you are realize there's a lot of high level people. If you DM them, hey, I'm over in Germany right now. We're at the place where it all begins. <laughs> you know, if everything goes to hell, can I get five minutes of your time? Because I, I'm trying to figure out my future. Your hit rate's going to be incredible. And so a lot of folks, because they may be sheepish and feel like, what's that CEO going to give me? They don't realize that a lot of folks have the same emotion I do, but very team. So that's number one. Number two, by virtue of you having been in the military, that is a very leverageable asset that gets you in the door of a lot of places when you leave. And I think imposter syndrome or what do I know? I'm not like these finance guys. You know, that barrier that you may erect will prevent you from actually leveraging what is a tremendous asset. I'm having this conversation right now with my my stepsons. Amazing, sweet kid. Love him. He is thinking about actually enlisting in the Marines after college. He really wants to. He wants to go into the reserves. And we were talking through the, you know, the pluses or minuses. And I was saying to him, you know what? If an applicant were to walk into my office and said, after college, they enlisted, like, do you realize how powerful that is? Like how much respect that earns? And so I guess my message for anybody out there in the military listening who feels a little bit out of their depth in the private sector, first of all, everybody's faking it. Number one, just know that. <laughs> Number two, you, what it says about you as somebody who's been willing to serve, endure, operate in that rigid environment, sacrifice. Like there is a debt that a lot of people at my level feel that you may not be aware of because we're so cynical in society. And you need to be aware of that so that you leverage it and don't hold yourself back inadvertently. Well, Matt, that's awesome advice. Not in the book, but you got it in this episode. Exactly. Thank you so much for your time this evening, your afternoon. This I know you're extremely busy. It was great. We went there. <laughs> we did. We did. Again, highly recommend Burn the Boats. Awesome book, especially the audio book because it's narrated by Matt. Yeah. I'm going to end on one thing, if I can have the last word, just on a military history. Yeah. Everyone out there listening, since you... I'm sure there's a lot of military history buffs out there, right? You may know the word, the burn the boats from Cortez, but from 1519, he supposedly burned the boats. He actually he actually scuttled them, but whatever. It's a detail. But what I found amazing writing this book 
is that every culture in the world has their own story of a fabled general. Yes. When their back was against the wall, they did their version of burn the boats. And if you want, if you were in um, in the Middle East right now and you mentioned burn the boats, they go, oh, Tarek, you yes. burn the boats, right? They would tell the story of the conquering of Spain. If you were in China and you said it, they would be like, I don't know who Cortez is necessarily, but I sure know about the ancient battle in 206 BC where, you know, the military leader burned the boats. And so as a, a way to have my own accountability partner, so I never waver from this doctrine, actually got, I'll show it to you, I got a tattoo. I got the Chinese version of the words, burn the boats, pofu, chenzhou, on my arm. Nice. I know it looks kind of like a gang sleeve, but not <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing. The reason why I want to leave everyone with this, why is it that military leaders from the dawn of time Embrace this philosophy that we talk our kids out of. And we tell our children they need a backup plan when they tell us they want to be the next Taylor Swift. You know, and so the answers to the test are actually within military culture that when everything is on the line, including your life, you eliminate optionality and you go all in. And so that's my mission with this book is to convince people that to change your relationship with risk and that creating a backup plan is the very thing that causes you to need one. So burn the boats or Pofu Chenjo. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud. Oh, I've been running from the love.